0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: We're into another phase for uh, Hamilton's uh, transit plans and LRT plans. Hamilton, as we know, submitted the environmental assessment for the now extended LRT route for the provincial approval. That was after a rather interesting city council meeting a few weeks ago. But it opens a 30-day window for the public to comment on this. The environmental assessment does not include info on whether the bridge over the Red Hill Valley Parkway needs to be replaced, which actually could have an impact on the budget, but what's in there and uh, what do you as the public have an opportunity to do here? Let's bring Paul Johnson into the conversation from the City of Hamilton. He, of course, is the uh, the uh, head guy for the city on this LRT project. He joins us here on 900 CHML. Good morning, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Yourself? Good, good. Listen, let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on at this point. I don't want to rehash uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that's gone on so far, but the environmental assessment was submitted. Now, this is, this is part of this pr- process, this public input, right?
2: It is, and uh, you know, of course, following the council meeting at the tail end of of April, uh, you know, now the the environmental project report that was submitted is a 14 kilometer long LRT system from Eastgate through to McMaster University. The good news was we didn't need a lot of time to update uh, the environmental project report because we already had approval on a section through to Eastgate uh, from 2011, and in fact, we're not proposing. Changes to alignment or stop locations along that section, so uh relatively quick uh, turnaround on that. in fact, we delivered it on Friday, which is exactly one month uh, after council made the decision and asked us to uh, extend the route uh try and get that in the project, submit it, and so uh we're we're underway
1: with that so anybody that had these concerns that well, they've extended again, that's going to mean more work. You really just kind of dusted off a previous report here, didn't you?
2: uh... we did we updated so that people can see the plans the actual route alignment where the stops are uh... uh within the document but um, but as i said if this had been a whole new route if it had been down a different street i mean there's no way we could have turned this around but uh... in essence we already had the approval and those approvals that were received in two thousand eleven last for a period of time so it was really an exercise in changing the project description in the first part of the epr and uh, and submitting it as such and so the thirty day window is a chance for again people to look at the changes that have been made along the way, and you and I have talked lots about that, uh, mm-hmm. stop locations, stop additions, pedestrian crossings, those types of things, and also the reports that come out. Uh, it's a 30-day period. Those comments uh, still come back to us, and then there's the opportunity also, though, if people really feel that we've missed something that's of provincial significance, the opportunity there is to uh, is to uh, write to the minister uh, and, and uh, the ministry office and and provide some commentary on that. But that's not to write to the Ministry about every other issue and and just thoughts on the LRT. This is the opportunity, though, for the Minister to see whether there had been anything missed in terms of uh, of, uh, constitutionally protected Aboriginal or treaty rights uh, or uh, negative impacts of provincial significance when it comes to the natural environment or cultural heritage. So it's a pretty high threshold, and that's what this next 30 days is about, but also for us to hear feedback and comment around the project, uh, and then we, we just keep moving forward.
1: So, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, but, I mean, if somebody just says, well, I'm just opposed to this project altogether, uh, I mean, that's not really instructive criticism at this stage right now, and and I guess that's up to the ministry to determine how they want to approach something. But you're looking for something more prescriptive. In other words, I'm I'm concerned about such and such, and, and bring up a specific issue then.
2: Yeah, it would have to be something that's, uh, you know, a significant error in terms of either environmental issues. And, you know, one of the areas that's new in this project is, of course, the operations, maintenance and storage facility at, at uh, Longwood and Aberdeen area. And so there's a number of reports that are related to that. And so if we've uh, missed something that somebody says, you know, I don't think the right environmental work was uh, was done there. or I don't think the mitigation strategies, for instance, are, are the right ones. Those are the types of things that matter. And they, that's what's mattered throughout this whole uh, EA phase of, of, of the work and you know going to the the, the ministry itself is, is an even a higher threshold that's the it, they're not interested in stop locations and this type of stuff they assume that work and the public feedback's been done uh, they would be looking at as I mentioned a few tight categories where the province would say hey if you've impacted a treaty <laughs> or you've impacted something significant from a provincial cultural heritage perspective we need to know about that because that's a that's obviously something they would want to make sure we we, we fix and this is all about are our mitigation strategies correct? So, uh, you know, there, there, uh, there are butternut trees on the uh, operations, maintenance, and storage for s- facility perspective. doesn't mean we can't go there and do work there. It just means we have to have the right mitigation strategies in place, and we've done some of that. So that's what this comment period is about. Uh, we expect, because this is also an update to the EA, that really, uh, you know, this isn't the first time we've been there. So we, we haven't really changed a whole lot on the route. The big addition, quite frankly, from an EA perspective, was the, uh, was the addition of the operations, maintenance, and storage facility.
1: I mentioned the bridge in my preamble. I want to ask you about that, if I could, Paul, because there's obviously some concern about uh, the other end of of this route here. Of course, uh, the bridge over the 403 on uh, this end of town, the west end of town. Uh, Mm -hmm. With the initial plan, obviously you had to go over the Red Hill Valley. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And I know that there were some bridges that were constructed there not too long ago. Can you accommodate this new route plan within that infrastructure, or are you going to have to build something else like you're going to have to do in the west end here?
2: Uh, It was never anticipated that we would do an LRT-only bridge. Uh, the, The situation over the 403 is just very different than the Red Hill. Uh, and and, uh, so we don't anticipate having to do that we're also not transitioning from one road to the other as we are in the west end going from King Street and having to go over to Main Street so uh, this is a different scenario our expectation is that this is about uh, strengthening and engineering uh, you know doing a little bit of extra engineering work so that the bridge and the LRT can function together Uh, we we are having to do a bit more analysis on that to make sure that that's the case but uh, uh, this again uh, you know the Red Hill was in place in 2011 when we were doing the original work uh, so we we know some of the structural stuff it's now going back and making sure that that can uh, uh can happen and obviously that has a volatility on cost uh, we need to know that but uh, we're not anticipating this be a situation where we have to uh, tear everything down and start over again and definitely not looking at an LRT only bridge across that section
1: I mean, it's a pretty wide bridge I by the way we should mention as well because we've talked King Street to, uh, to Main Street and back over again etc uh, depending on which part of the route you're on I mean you know it, it, there is a little bit on King Street there's a little bit on Main Street but from a technical standpoint, when you're crossing the Red Hill Valley, that's, that's really Queenston Road you're talking about, isn't it?
2: It is. So at uh, where we were terminating at the Queenston traffic circle, uh, you know, now the LRT runs along Queenston Road, uh, and it widens out at that stage. So yeah. uh, it, we're going to have two lanes of traffic on either side of LRT, so it, it very much mirrors some of the treatment that you see in the west end, out uh, by Westdale. So you've got, got a lot more
1: leeway LRT. there than you would in some sections of the west end
2: we do it's a much wider right-of-way uh, it'll be easier on utilities uh, and that's and that's really bill why why we were able to and and metrolinks quite frankly was able to say uh, if council really does want us to explore that and, and get this to Eastgate, that uh, that we have a good chance of doing that. A, the technical work was already done, and B, uh, from a corridor perspective, it's it's actually uh, a much... Um, I hate to use the word easier, but relative terms, easier to work in, in a, as a corridor as opposed to some of the King and Main
1: East areas. Yeah, because I haven't heard the word easy used too often when you've talked about <laughs> LRT construction, Paul. That's that's a new word for you, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, you caught me on a Monday morning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you may live to regret it, but I Anyway, uh, let let me ask you about the logistics, and again, this is maybe old ground for for you who have been on this and a lot of the staff, but I'm getting emails from people as we're having this conversation saying, Eastgate Square is privately owned. How can you actually have the turnabout there? Have you made a deal with the people that own that mall, or is it going to be on public property? How's this going to work?
2: actually, the proposal is that, uh, like McMaster University, and that this uh, this ends in the roadway, uh, and the, and the stop is actually in the in the roadway. So, uh, uh, like most of our stops, uh, passengers would get off uh, the LRT, which is in the middle of the road, and cross safely at a at a signalized pedestrian area. So there is no impact to the private property there uh, in terms of pulling the LRT on. I believe at one stage, way back in the midst of time, there was talk of pulling it right onto Eastgate, but the actual actual Um, Actual documents that were filed in 2011 uh, had to stop in in the right-of-way, in the roadway, uh, in front of Eastgate. And then, of course, there's a quick connection right across the road to the transit terminal that's there for our buses. So, uh, you know, again, this can can work. It's not that there isn't some minor construction that has to take place, but um, we're very much still going on that stop in the middle of the roadway.
1: And by the way, using this phrase "turnaround" is really a bit misinformed, isn't it? Because I mean, there's no yeah. turnaround; you just you just start going the other way now, don't you?
2: Yeah, good point. Sorry, I missed the second part of that. Uh, yeah, we never turn the trains around at any point along the route. Uh, it's uh, the use of crossover tracks. So whether it crosses over right at the stop and and uh, comes in on the opposite side, or when it pulls out to go the opposite way, it crosses over to get to the correct side of the of the guideway. Uh, these vehicles travel in a linear fashion. Uh, there are driver cars on either end of light rail. So that's, um, that's how we get, uh, that's how we get Around per se happening. Uh, so they don't have to turn around and they just simply stop at the ends and then come back on the opposite
1: track. Paul, what are you expecting and, and what is the public uh, allowed to do in this situation? I mean I, I don't want to suggest we're getting down to the short strokes, but I mean you, you, this process is moving forward and at some point you're gonna be looking for contractors and potential contractors in this situation. Is Is this one of the last or is this the last opportunity for the public to speak now or forever hold their peace?
2: Uh this is certainly the last opportunity where we're winding up the environmental project or, or environmental assessment process, so this will be wrapped up uh, once this thirty day period is over. Then the minister has a look and and uh says either you know proceed as you've planned, proceed with some conditions uh uh but you know the 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 proceed is going to you know we anticipate is going to come forward on this uh, and then we get into the procurement phase and metrolinks and infrastructure ontario are looking at the timing of that now we do have an extra three kilometers to add into the tender documents so there is a little bit of extra work that has to take place but as i mentioned to council uh, we'd be looking at a shift in time frame of, uh, you know, maybe a couple of months. We're not looking at this as as throwing us off the schedule uh, uh, immensely. It just probably we don't get out in early summer. We're probably getting out to closer to uh, the end of summer or the early fall period. So that's, that's where we are. And you're right, the EA phase is wrapping up. So in terms of looking at those types of pieces, uh, that's, that's finished. Do design elements change throughout the project? Absolutely. Uh, even in construction, there are some changes that are taking place in other LRT systems as you get into it, but they would be minor in nature. Uh, this is really where we, we have our, our, uh, our look at the LRT, and then that goes into the deeper detailed design work that's uh, going to follow in
1: the coming months. Paul, is this document at this stage malleable? I mean, is there is there opportunity for some flexibility here, or is this really basically this is this is the way we're going to go? Uh, of course, notwithstanding what, some major concern or some maybe some mishap or some oversight.
2: Uh, there's there's room still for some for some tweaking of this. What's not on, of course, is the route itself. Uh, that's set. Uh, uh, you know, the technology itself, where the stops are located. Generally speaking, uh, we've got those nailed down uh, because those would be sort of major changes if we were suddenly to run it on a different route. Uh, that's a major change. So, but but this is really about you know environmentally. It's not going to matter whether the you know, the stop is eight feet this way or eight feet that way. Uh, that That's not an environmental concern. This is to get the big pieces there. Can we construct the operations, maintenance, and storage facility where we want to? Yes, we can. Can we do the things? So those are the types of things we're looking at now. Uh, there are opportunities, and, and uh, council continue to talk to us uh, a little bit about some of the questions they have um, around traffic management, for instance, and, and the you know, the actual platform locations at some of these stop locations. So those, those are things that can continue. Continue to be tweaked as we go. And the other last piece is that we'll get some design considerations coming back, um, you know, through the process that MetroLinks and Infrastructure Ontario will be uh, putting forward. Uh, you know, some of the people bidding on this project may have ideas that they wish to inject into the conversation, and if they're great ideas, uh, we'll want to take the innovation and the experience and the creativity of the industry into account as well.
1: You mentioned Aboriginal concerns, uh, which obviously was a major factor. Let's face it, in the Red Hill, the the, the project itself, uh, and and I don't know if it delayed it necessarily, but I think it seemed as if well, a lot more attention was paid to it in the latter stages of that project uh, as that started to unfold with the city right now. Have all those eyes been dotted and those T's crossed?
2: Uh, the conversations, uh, uh, no, they're not. They're not finished. Uh, the circulation of the information around environmental assessment work. Uh, always includes uh, partners in the aboriginal community and so they will have received some information about uh, about this project already and then uh, we'll be having some conversations really it'll it'll um, you know get into some some detailed conversations once we really know the engineering side uh, particularly the bridge across the red hill i know that will be a significant concern um, and we'll we'll deal with those conversations then but again we have EA approval on, a, on, on, a, on an LRT project that took us from Eastgate to McMaster in 2011. Those conversations took place. It's really about you know getting back together and having those conversations now that we know where we're going uh, uh, once, now that the money's on the table.
1: Have you heard from those groups? Has there been any feedback from them?
2: Uh, I haven't personally. That's not to say they haven't been in touch with MetroLink, which would really be, uh, you know, driving the bus a little bit on on this conversation, as it uh, also goes to the construction contracts and and some of the uh, procurement work that would be happening in the future. But uh, to date, no. And you know, realistically, we're just uh, we've been we've been scrambling and and working really hard over the last three or four weeks just to get the document done so we can submit and move on. Uh, plenty of time for the conversations. This is not the end of those conversations for sure. This is about filing. Uh, so that we, uh, you know, we get that approval on this uh, on this alignment for our LRT.
1: For those that may want to have input into this right now, is there a pub- public meeting in which they'll be allowed to to express their views, or should they simply submit stuff to Metrolinks? What's the process here?
2: So uh, the public meetings are finished as part of the EA process. We did do two rounds of public uh, meetings. At this stage, it is written uh, or verbal comments. Uh, the information is uh, on our website, including the notice. Anybody within 45 meters of the corridor has been mailed a notice, uh, and the documents are both available online as well as in a few locations in hard copy form for people to to look at. And really, the first step is always to get in touch with the project office, our office, because um, some things that people may still be interested in about a pedestrian crossing or something—that's something we need to take on as a project. That's not something the ministry is interested in, uh, but there is also at this stage the opportunity to uh, lodge uh, concerns with uh, with the ministry directly if it if it fits into some of their categories. All that's on the, on our website, hamilton.ca slash LRT. Uh, big links to both the notice, big links to, obviously, our environmental project report so that people can make those comments back to us.
1: Paul Johnson uh, heading up the LRT plan for the city of Hamilton. Paul, thanks as always. I really appreciate the update today. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. So if you uh, you want to get in on that, go to the website, uh, get all the details about how you can make your uh, your views known on this. And uh, well, like I say, if, if you're simply opposed to this, I'm not so sure you're going to get much of a hearing on this, but if you've got some substantive concerns, let them know about it. Or as the saying goes, forever hold your peace. Back after the break, the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You're
0: listening to the Bill Kelly
1: Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Well, as you know, the uh, Basic Income Project uh, is a pilot project that was announced by the provincial government some time ago. And Hamilton is one of the pilot centers for this, along with Lindsay, uh, just the of Peterborough and Thunder Bay. And, and Brantford, I guess, is a, kind of a satellite to the Hamilton Project as well. Want to know what's going on? Well, this is your lucky day, because there's going to be a roundtable here in Hamilton that's going to discuss this project and exactly how it could impact you and maybe even benefit you. Tom Cooper, the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, uh, is going to be there. He's here right now, though, to talk about this. How are you doing
3: this morning, Tom? Good morning on this gloomy Monday, Bill.
1: Uh, well, it's, it's a Monday, so what are you going to Even if the sun was shining, it'd be a gloomy Monday, wouldn't it? Anyway, <laughs> we, we digress. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. Now, since this project was announced, and I know that you and, and others around the province have been advocating for something like this for quite some time, uh, but you've got some feedback on it now because it's now not just in the hypothetical. It's, it's a reality, at least in this center, for the next little while. What are you hearing back
3: from the community
1: about the possibility of this happening and the implications?
3: I, I'm i not hearing all that much yet, Bill, because there isn't a lot of information out there. So Premier Wynne swept into town about a month ago with the national media in tow and announced that Hamilton, along with the uh, other communities you mentioned, were going to be part of a basic income pilot and it's the first time it's being tried here in Ontario. Basically what a basic income is, is a government transfer to individuals, uh, in this case people who are specifically living on low incomes, and, and there's very few strings attached. So if you're living on provincial social assistance programs, either Ontario Works or the Ontario Disability Support Program, could potentially uh, participate if you're somebody who's working, uh, maybe working a bunch of part-time jobs, but not earning enough at your job to make ends meet, you could potentially participate. The catch is, though, only a 1,000 people in Hamilton uh, will get the nod and uh, be able to take part in this basic income pilot for three years. It'll provide almost 17,000 maximum, um, but certainly, for somebody say on Ontario works who's only getting uh getting about seven hundred and six dollars a month to live on, that is a significant increase in in their income um so you know, from the perspective of those a thousand people in our community who are who are going to be part of the basic income pilot, that's great news. Uh, for the forty nine thousand others who may rely on so- provincial social assistance programs, um, you know they they'll have to wait and see what other possible opportunities come down the line in terms of uh, reforming social assistance and. You know, one other possibility we're hearing about uh, rumors. The rumor mills rampant uh, is about the possibility of a fifteen dollars minimum wage in in the next few years. So we'll have to see how that rolls out as well. But for today uh, at the library at seven p.m., uh, our this hope the, is, this is
1: the downtown library.
3: Yeah, downtown library, central branch. Uh, we're going to be bringing in uh, some some of the provincial coordinators who are doing this work on basic income, as well as a guest speaker who's been involved in basic income research, and we're going to try to learn more about how it's going to affect Hamiltonians.
1: Well, how's it going to affect those that even aren't going to be impacted by this program directly? In other words, maybe not one of these thousand people, because the biggest criticism has always been, Tom, that this is money for nothing, and that's just wrong.
3: It is it is wrong. That's uh, a wrong way of looking at it. And one of the reasons we're bringing in uh, the guest speaker tonight, uh, her name is Evelyn Forge, and she was a researcher at the University of Manitoba who looked at Canada's very first basic income experiment in Dauphin, Manitoba in the 1970s. Um, so they didn't do the research at the time they basically shoved everything in file boxes and, and put it away for a couple of decades. Dr. Forget uh, came along and, and started studying the research and found out that when a basic income is provided uh, it actually has a pretty f- profound impact on individuals as well as the community. Uh, so what she found is that people weren't leaving their jobs to get you know what some people might consider free money. They were staying with their jobs, but they were able maybe to find a little bit better jobs. Uh, They didn't have the day-to-day crises in their life around trying to afford affordable housing or uh, being able to get food. Uh, Their health improved as well. There was a significant upturn in the health of people who were participating in basic income. So Dr. Forger is going to talk a little bit about some of those results and how... It might affect Hamilton as well, Uh, because there's only a thousand people participating. Though I don't don't expect we'll see the same sort of community impact that Dauphin, Manitoba saw in the 1970s. But we know when people are earning a bit more money, that's money that's uh, spent in the community on local goods and services at grocery stores and other essential items, and that's helping to drive the economy and, and, and drive economic growth. So. I think there's positives, and we've often said that providing people with a little bit more money um, uh, to live on is actually the best uh, infrastructure program you can come up with because it is in just that investing in people.
1: Well, does it act as a disincentive to try to, to move up that ladder and to try to do something better? In other words, if if you've got a guaranteed seventeen thousand dollars and you're thinking, well, you know, I don't, I don't need to, I can just hang in here. My, my life is good the way it is. Yeah. Well, Not, and having said that. That's that's the argument I'm hearing from a lot of people that are against this whole concept. Exactly. Uh, I have yet to run anybody, and I, I spent nine years when I was on city council working in the social services subcommittee as the vice chair of that committee. I don't think anybody ever came up to
3: me and said, hey, I, I'm happy being poor. I'm This is good. I'm, I'm cool. Exactly. And I think we're going to find that. Again, this is an experiment. It's a bit of a social experiment. You know, some people may look... Added as a bit of social Darwinism because, you know, we're only choosing a thousand people and then seeing, you know, in a sense how they evolve uh, by being given a little bit more money. Um, and it is a lottery in a sense because because we don't know exactly the process for, uh, for being selected. We understand it's going to be randomized. But um, our understanding is that people uh, who do receive a basic income in other experiments that have been tried in Dauphin, Manitoba, in other places around the world, in the U.S., and Finland, in the Netherlands, um, they they want to work. People want to work. And that, and the people I've worked with um, when I've been uh, involved in, in this type of anti-poverty uh, uh, initiatives over the last decade and more... Um, they all want to be part of the solution. They want to get out, they want to, um, they want to work, they want to contribute. Um, so I think we'll see from this basic income pilot project that that uh, comes to fruition as well. Again, this is, this is a test, this is why the provincial government's doing this, uh, to see if that, those are really the outcomes. And um, it'll be tested over three years and then they'll evaluate how, uh, how people react.
1: All right, these are things I'm sure are going to be discussed at the roundtable later on tonight at the public library downtown on York Boulevard. But, but the things I've heard is as we've talked about this uh, in the hypothetical again over the last number of years, and and one of the other points that seems to come up time and time again, and you just alluded to the fact I've heard the same rumors about the province potentially raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. And and by the way, if they do this, apparently it's not going to be in one fell swoop. It's, it it'd be a phased in thing. So we're told anyway. But with that on the horizon, potentially, mm-hmm. is this living wage program the redundant? The uh, basic income? The basi- I think, I'm sorry, the basic income, I, yeah.
3: I think uh, No, I think it could work absolutely hand-in-hand in hand with an increase in, in minimum wage because what we'd want to see is that uh, people earning enough at their jobs to, to meet, uh, meet their needs – and I I think that would be absolutely uh, something that would go hand in hand with basic income so if you're in a situation where you're between jobs, uh, where maybe you're not able to get enough hours at your job, uh, then you would have a little bit of a, a bump up from basic income. Um, so the way the provincial government's uh, going to align this program with work is that uh, about 50% of uh, earned income is going to be taken off the basic income amount up to a, up to a maximum of uh, $34,000. So you could still earn some money at your job but half of your basic income amount will be taken off, so I, th- I think it's uh, it's a good fit, and I think absolutely increasing the minimum wage uh, to fifteen dollars is is something that uh, would I think enhance economic opportunities right across the province. Again, we have I think one point eight million people who are going to work every single day here in Ontario, and they're not earning enough at their jobs uh, to pull them themselves or their families out of poverty. They're the working poor. And by providing a $15 minimum wage as a floor, and I think, you know, we still have to have the conversations about what a living wage is, but as a floor, a $15 minimum wage would enable people to meet uh, some of their basic needs. And we've seen uh, particularly housing prices here in Hamilton and and across the GTA Soar through the roof. It, it's hard to find uh, rental accommodations now in this community. Uh, for a one-bedroom under a thousand dollars, for certainly two bedrooms under under thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars. Uh, if you have a larger family, it's, it's becoming impossible to afford rent. Um, people just aren't earning enough at their jobs, and and so I think a fifteen-dollar minimum wage would recognize that uh, that's what people need to earn to meet their basic needs, um, and. Again, it's, it's not something that it, Ontario would be doing alone. Lots of jurisdictions in the United States have bumped up their minimum wage to $15. We've seen Alberta do it. They've taken the a sort of similar approach in terms of doing it over four years. And Alberta's economy, uh, for various reasons, has, has had some troubles, mostly because of the oil sector. But, from what i've been hearing uh, about the minimum wage increase it's it's actually been a positive for their economy
1: I, I just want to bounce some numbers here because you were talking about how this is going to work it's like a mathematical equation uh, and you mentioned this is to a maximum of seventeen thousand dollars but if somebody's making Pull a number of fifteen thousand dollars, yeah it's not fifteen plus seventeen, uh, which means they're all That's all right. of a sudden their incomes is going to jump to thirty two thousand dollars. There is still a clawback. How does yep. that work? So the
3: clawback would be fifty percent, so every dollar you earn uh above the uh the seventeen thousand I believe would be clawed back, uh fifty cents on the dollars. my understanding up to a maximum of uh, thirty four thousand so people um people living on low incomes uh Uh, but working, would still be able to participate. Uh, I think probably the biggest impact around basic income would be for those on social assistance. And as you know, Bill, uh, people are languishing on on really low income levels, so about a third of the poverty line for somebody on Ontario Works. And we know the people going to food banks in Hamilton are actually those people who are on provincial social assistance programs because they're not getting enough through their basic uh, needs. Um, from the provincial government to to meet uh, their food costs and, and certainly not shelter costs. And so a basic income would provide a little bit more dignity for those people and ensure that they can get off that treadmill of of desperation.
1: What about companion programs? Because I'm not hearing a whole lot about this. And and I, I understand and I think there should be some compassion for people that are, are working two, three jobs in some cases and still not making ends meet because of, as you say, cost of living and, and, and these other factors. But what about the things like job retraining and other programs that need to be in place to try to lift people up like this? Where's the investment in that?
3: Yeah, and, and absolutely. And there there is an ongoing debate amongst anti-poverty advocates about the basic income uh, just for that reason. Because some people see it as a distraction from doing the other things we need to do in well, society. Well, because I'm
1: hearing from people, and God knows I'm sure you have over the years in, in your role at the, the roundtable, people are saying, look, I'm working two jobs as it is. Uh, I'd love to go back to school to to improve my standing here, but you know, I I've got two kids. And, you know, yep. the marriage broke up. I'm I'm charged with this. I'm not getting support from my ex. Uh, where's my daycare program? Where's Where's the assistance for this? And the answer is, well, we're working on it.
3: Yeah. So a thousand people are going to be receiving this in Hamilton. Another uh, three thousand on top of that in other areas of the province. Yeah, Out of about the 90,000 who would qualify ordinarily. Exactly. And across the province, there are 900,000 on social assistance there programs. There's 1.8 million people working poor. So yeah, this is a very small percentage of people who are going to be participating uh, in the grand scale. And that basic income should not be an excuse for inaction on other social policy fronts. And you're absolutely right in terms of needed uh, needed improvements in, in training uh, for people who, who lose their jobs, the uh, need to invest in affordable childcare, the need to invest in affordable housing. Uh, these are all things we have to do as a society. And uh, we can't use, you know, the fact that we're doing this basic income test uh, over the next three years and as an excuse not to do anything on the other fronts because those absolutely still need to move forward. And at the roundtable, we're going to be pushing very strongly for real social assistance reform. Uh, We have Bill 6 uh, that is sitting at the Ontario legislature. It's uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek MPP Paul Miller's bill. Uh, that would create an evidence-based approach to setting social assistance rates, but the government has seen f- hasn't seen fit to move it forward at committee yet, so it hasn't come to a vote. It's just languishing there. Um, we really need that, uh, that approach, I think, to, so that people on social assistance can meet their basic needs. Because right now, social assistance rates come nowhere close to meeting the actual costs of food or housing or other things that a person needs to do to live on.
1: I mean, it's a nice headline, and I get that, and, and I'm not suggesting it's not a part of the solution here, but how big a part is it, really? I mean, you know, it's to say, congratulations, Mr. Cooper, you've qualified for the program, uh, so you're going to get this uh, this money, and it's going to come your way. Uh, but by the way, there's still a seven-year wait for affordable housing, so yeah. good luck with that, you know? Uh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's not really addressing the bigger picture here.
3: You're right, and it, it's, it's one solution in the toolbox, I think, and, uh, you know, as we As we move forward as a society and we recognize that there's more jobs that are going to be automated, um, you know the robots are taking over, and we hear all about self-driving cars and what will that do to the delivery industry or the uh, the trucking industry or the taxi industry and and other jobs out there as well. Um, if people are are losing their jobs, we're going to need a basic level of income to survive on so that people uh, can, you know, buy their basic needs, certainly, but also be able to keep the economy running. Because if people aren't buying things, uh, we're going to have businesses going out of business. Uh, So we do need people with disposable income to to be able to continue to keep the economy humming. Having said that, though, uh, this is You know, I think a a test that will demonstrate that there will be positive results. Will there be the political will across the province to implement uh, basic income? What will be the cost? Um, These are certainly key questions that uh, will need to be answered as part of this pilot project. I think going into tonight's town hall, we have some, you know, even more basic issues. Questions for the provincial officials. Uh, How will I find out if I qualify for the basic income? Um, Will it come in the mail? Uh, Is there a way to apply? Our understanding is, you know, these are going to be randomized uh, letters sent to people. Um, but we want people to be able to recognize- Based on what? How are they going to pick? Yeah, well, that's, these are good questions. Is, is is it what, like your
1: income tax thing? I mean, because a lot of people basically in, in low income situations don't even file income exactly. tax. Exactly.
3: And and that, um, that brings us to another point. And prior to this town hall tonight, between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., we're going to be holding a, a free drop-in income tax clinic at the public library on the fourth floor. So- if you haven't filed your taxes, strongly encourage you to to visit some of the great volunteers uh, on the fourth floor, floor of the library to, to get your taxes done. Um, we're pretty sure that you'll need to have your taxes done in order to qualify for the basic income pilot. So that's certainly one piece of it. But you're absolutely right. We know through our work on on income tax filing that there's lots of low income people in the community who don't file their taxes because they don't seem to think there might be a benefit to it. Um, Now we have something a little bit more concrete in this basic income pilot. We know the Canada Child Benefit is there, which wasn't there in previous years. So these are uh, important improvements to people's incomes that they need to file taxes in order to get. What criteria, and maybe you'll find this out tonight, but what criteria
1: are going to be used to determine whether or not this pilot project is quote-unquote successful? Yeah,
3: and here's another great question. <laughs> and It's great to have the announcement um, from the Premier, but these are sort of the burning questions yeah. we, we simply don't have any answers to. Who's going to do the evaluation? I, I want to be clear, by the way, this is not your project. It's not our project. I mean, I mean you're, you're doing a,
1: a public meeting on this, but I mean, this is the province's uh, show, and they're the ones that should be answering this.
3: Yes, and, and And they should. And we're certainly trying to facilitate that conversation because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, You know, we don't know how the programs are going to be evaluated, who's going to do the evaluation. We know here in Hamilton, there's some great organizations. Certainly, I, I would look to McMaster University for its leadership. on uh, on a number of these fronts. They've done great work on the uh, neighborhood development strategy. I I think they would fit well as a uh, partner for the province in terms of evaluating the basic income. We have our Social Planning and Research Council who does amazing on-the-ground work around uh, evaluation. There's lots of others out there as well. I I would certainly strongly encourage the provincial government to use a local component uh, when evaluating the basic income locally.
1: Well, uh, we'll get some more information about this tonight, obviously, and uh, certainly like to get some response from the federal government and uh, like a, or the provincial government, rather. But uh, certainly, this is going to be uh, very, very uh, interesting, but also overshadowed by the co- potential, anyway, for uh, more government announcements about, uh, for instance, minimum wage and uh, hiking that up as well. Uh, good luck. What time do you start tonight?
3: Yeah, we start at 7 o'clock. It's in the main auditorium of the central branch of the public library. Tom
1: Cooper, director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Good to see you. Thanks, and good luck tonight. Thank you, Bill. You're
0: listening to The Bill Kelly
1: Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Well, this uh, past Saturday, of course, the Federal Conservative Party held their leadership convention. Now uh, This has been going on for quite some time, and uh, what a what a campaign it was. Kevin Leary was in, he was out, Kelly Leach was winning, and then she, well, you saw what happened with her on Saturday but even the, uh, the most profound pundits, I guess, that have been covering this over the last number of months, probably never expected, when it was all said and done, that this individual would be giving a victory speech.
2: Because we are positive, because we are strong, and because we have principled conservative values, and because we all work together, tous ensemble, to win in 2019. Let's get started. Come on, en maintenant
1: doesn't sound like Maxime Bernier, does it? No, because it's not. Andrew Scheer, of course, won on the last ballot uh, in in what turned out to be a very, very interesting day on Saturday, as all was said and done. Uh, Tim Harper, of course, freelance writer and editor, uh, has a great piece in the Toronto Star today about Scheer's uh, victory, of course, and what it means for the Conservative Party and for Canada. And uh, always pleased to welcome Tim Harper back to the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Tim, how are you doing today, my friend?
0: I'm doing good, Bill. Good to talk to you again.
1: Good to have you back with us again. Uh, now, please tell me that you knew all along that Sheer was going to win this thing.
0: Oh yeah, I just didn't have a chance to write about it. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, no. To be honest with you, he was always um, uh, he was always ranked in the top two or three, and you know it was uh, it, it's a very difficult um, race to handicap because of the complicated point system and the rank ballot and so on. So. Um, Not to diss any of my colleagues, but anybody who thought that uh, uh, Maxine Bernier had this in the bag was probably getting a a little bit ahead of the train here because um, Bernier certainly worked longer and harder for it and raised way more money than anybody else. But, you know, Andrew Shearer, as it turned out, was everybody's uh, or enough uh, people's second choice to win it. And that's what a ranked ballot. Uh, is all about, is not you know necessarily to be everybody's first choice, but to be some, uh, the, the candidate that everybody can live with
1: uh, as a second or third choice, and that's what put him over the top. Even when they got down to the fourth, fifth, and maybe even the sixth ballots, and, and Bernier maintained his lead, I, I, I was saying to my wife at the time, I said, he's in trouble because he's not growing. Uh, he was incrementally, but not to the point where you thought, okay, this is the front runner. now he's going to start gaining as other people dropped off. That never really happened for him
0: no and you could uh, see what was happening uh, uh, as the uh, ballots continued because uh Brad Trost and Pierre Lemieux two um social conservative uh, uh pro life uh candidates got far more support i think than most people including me uh, anticipated and uh you could you could also anticipate that they would go uh their second uh, choice would be their supporter's second choice would likely be Andrew Scheer. and then when it came down to um uh, Aaron O'Toole, I was talking to colleagues in the the room thinking if there's any logic involved here that the O'Toole uh, supporters would likely go to Shear. But, you know, the big question mark was, was there logic at play? As it turns out, I guess there was, but but nobody really knew. Um, So you could see the way, very early on, actually, uh, the way this was going to break down when you saw who was still hanging in the race. And how they were more likely to go to Andrew Shearer than Maxine Bernier. And by the way, as an aside, I, I, I'm sure you know, um, the vote was signed, sealed, and delivered. This was all theater. Yeah, right? they were. Yeah. Just, this was a dance of the seven veils to create a little <laughs> drama in there. And I got to give them credit. After a uh, a completely yawn-inducing uh, campaign that seemed to stretch on for half my adult life, the um, the actual event uh, was very nicely choreographed, and they did create suspense in that room.
1: No, well, for sure, uh, to to carry it on for thirteen ballots and and to finally have this, uh, as it turned out, uh, with a uh, sheer winning this whole thing. What's this though, Tim? When you look back on this now, as the dust has settled, uh, I, I equated this in my commentary earlier this morning to to the two thousand six Liberal convention in Montreal when uh, Stefan mm-hmm. Dion was elected. Where let's face it, I mean that was uh, the anybody but Ignachev vote, you know, and they 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 rallied around Dion and said. You know, we just don't want Ignatia for a variety of reasons. I guess they all had the reasons. They, but I got the sense that as this wore on on Saturday, and as you see, even though the votes were already in, that this was a, a, an anybody but Bernier vote, and they were trying to find, okay, who's going to be the guy that can actually take this guy out?
0: Oh, I'm not sure if I'd I buy that totally. Um, one thing that the Liberals had to deal with immediately in the wake of uh, uh, choosing Stefan. Stéphane- uh, Dion, I think there was some very quick buyer's remorse and a little bit of uh, what did we just do? I no don't kidding.
1: You're, fin-
0: <laughs> you're, you're you're not finding that with uh, with this guy. I think, given Shear's caucus support versus Bernier's, um I think if anybody could unite this party, keep it uh, keep the, uh, the the grass fires uh, I- inside the, the tent, so to speak, um, it would be Shear. The, the the problem with. Um, Bernier's candidacy, I think, in, in many eyes, was, you, this was a, a two-step process. Sure, you're, you're choosing a leader, but you're choosing somebody you think can take on Justin Trudeau in 2019, uh, and uh, Bernier was really the, the blow-it-up, radical uh, uh, change kind of candidate, sort of a... He would appeal to those who, who might have wanted to vote for Donald Trump south of the border, just, just blow it up, let's do everything differently, but uh, you know, that, that might... Um, satisfy a, a short-term itch, but I, uh, I'm not sure he was bringing anything to the table that was really saleable to the general uh, electorate. And, and this party had a, has a, uh, a policy convention in Halifax next year, and if Bernier had won, uh, I think he was going to have to pull uh, pull back on all kinds of uh, policies, including the, uh, the getting Ottawa out of health care. Shear, on the other hand, didn't put a whole bunch of big ideas on the, on the table, uh, and it is clearly the, the the safer choice, and he will carry on the, uh, the Harper style of conservatism, uh, albeit he'll do it in a lot um, uh, softer, uh, more benign, uh, with a smile on his face style, not the kind of hard-edged uh, uh, conservative message that you got from uh, from Stephen
1: Harper. Yeah, I, I saw one person on Saturday actually describe Shearer as Stephen Harper with a personality that's a little harsh, but I mean, the knock against Harper was that he was not a fun guy, and and you know you rarely saw him smile. Sheer sure quite the, the, the opposite on this. But you hardly, but,
0: ever, you hardly ever see Andrew Shear not smile. Yeah, right? there's quite a quite a difference there between the two men.
1: But but is he Stephen Harper light?
0: Um, he's he is I would think the natural heir to Harper. Uh, I don't know that he's Harper light. I think. I think this is a guy who will grow into the job, and I think Canadians who may be uh, sort of wondering exactly who this guy is uh, will see that he's got a little bit more uh, depth and uh, gravitas than uh, they might think. Um,
1: he's media savvy, to be sure.
0: He is media savvy. Um, if he has a low profile, you know, it's uh, he. let's take a step back. He comes from the reform part of the party, mm-hmm. uh, but he's been elected uh, – in every election out in Saskatchewan since 2004, but in 2011, uh, he was chosen as the uh, the speaker. And by its very nature, it's sort of like the uh, the uh, referee in a hockey game. If you're doing a good job, nobody knows who who uh, who's you know got the the zebra stripes on on the ice or who's uh, wearing that robe in the in the Commons. So it it kind of puts your profile uh, to bed for about four years. It, but it does show you two things. His colleagues, uh, because all parties vote for the Speaker, thought he was the kind of guy who uh, could get along with all sides. So, you know, a bit of a consensus builder, a guy that everybody can get along with. And he, and he also isn't going to wear any of the um, the Harper policies uh, that were unpopular because he was never in cabinet. He was the guy, he was yeah. the referee standing up in, in question period. So that's an advantage for him as well, I think.
1: There's the analogies here are interesting though. I mean Harper obviously a guy from from Eastern Canada from Toronto who moved out west. Shear's so, an Ontario guy too, uh, who He's moved model. up to Saskatchewan some time ago, and uh, and now has Western roots as well. Uh, and I, I got to ask you on that regard, as uh, you mentioned, Shear was never really that strong on policy. Uh, Bernier was he was kind of a polar opposite, and and maybe mm-hmm. the thing that swung an awful lot of those votes. I thought uh, was as you say his 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 attitude toward health care, but also supply management. Uh, And when you look at Western farmers and a lot of the folks that are on the prairies in Saskatchewan and and Alberta and places like that, uh, I I think Prost mentioned at one time that a lot of people that were supporting him at one time when he finally fell off the ballot said uh, they did not find a guy like Bernier. I think the term he used was socially acceptable. uh, And I think that had might be a lot more to do with some of his economic policies.
0: Well, on the supply management question, which, you know, it's quite an arcane policy. I I saw somebody write this weekend. I like this. that if uh, editorialists and uh, economists and, and columnists voted, uh, Bernier would win because the supply management uh, question is is something that you know a lot of us, myself included, think he's right. It should be ended, but um,
1: but who's got the courage to do it?
0: Well, yeah, and that's right. And and look, the dairy industry in his home province uh, clearly doesn't think this is a good idea, and and this this killed him. He he didn't even take Quebec because Shear, uh swept into Quebec and uh, promised to protect the, uh, the dairy industry with a supply management st- status quo. So uh, there's no question this hurt Bernier. And I'll tell you, the, the dynamics, there's another thing that hurt Bernier. Uh, if you were watching closely, and I'm sure you were, on Friday, he basically just punted his speech. He decided he was going to do like a, a five-minute video and, and uh, essentially got up on the stage and thanked some people and said, you know, thanks for coming, see you tomorrow. Shear delivered quite a very good speech. Now, at the time, it was thought, well, you know, that doesn't matter because, um, you know, all the votes are in, and this is just a show and everything, and it's not a delegated convention. You're not going to swing any support. But you have to wonder. Uh, 9,000 people did vote uh, at the convention in person on Saturday. And you have to wonder, particularly given the um, the, the very narrow uh, victory by Andrew Shear, that maybe that speech did enough people his way on Saturday that, to, to carry the day. So, you know, that was something else that was highly, uh, very unexpected in this, because this thing out at the Congress Center beside the uh, anime convention was just like the anime convention. It was all show, except, as it turns out, 9,000 people did vote, and, and maybe enough of them decided that Andrew Scheer, um swung them on Friday night with a speech to, to take him over the finish line.
1: There was some concern, though, because I want to talk about that one element of the party, and you mentioned Prost a couple of times and Lemieux uh-huh. here, Tim, uh, the, the social conservatives, the SOCANS, as they've been called. Uh, they obviously had an impact in, in, in how this thing turned out, and they're the ones yep. that ultimately swung their support over to Shear. Uh, he's not really one of them. I mean, notwithstanding that he's from Saskatchewan, etc., but he didn't have the same sort of policy stance as Prost and some of the NLMU and, and some of the others like that. How much influence are they going to try to exert on Shear when it comes to these policy conventions?
0: Well, first off, I would argue he is one of them. He has a perfect... Um, uh, conservative voting record of it, the way, you know, say, campaign life coalition would line it up. The difference is that he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. He doesn't campaign on it. Uh, he votes that way, and but doesn't promote it. He has got, I think, a bit of a problem uh, right off the bat. You're quite right. Uh, the support from Trost and Lemieux did break his way, and, you know, Brad Trost essentially became a kingmaker uh, at this convention. So, I think Andrew Scheer has to demonstrate uh to the party and more importantly to the country uh at large that he is not beholden to the social conservative wing in its part in his party because Bill you and I both know that uh Stephen Harper um really laid down the law. He Absolutely. Not, he was not going to um allow the abortion question to to uh, be raised again uh, by his party in the House of Commons or same sex marriage um Because Harper knew uh, that this hurts the brand. And ultimately, when these uh, SoCon eruptions uh, come up in the Conservatives, it ultimately costs them more votes than it wins them. And I think Andrew Scheer knows that. Scheer watched Harper operate that way. And I think Scheer's going to have to do the same thing. Uh, The difference, of course, was that uh, Harper was able to do it while in government. It'll be more difficult for sheer to to keep the social conservatives at bay in opposition.
1: Yeah, because it's Uh, easy to whip a party when you're you're the prime minister and simply say you're not going that way. But this wing of the
0: party, I think, uh, right now today feels uh, very powerful. uh, They feel like they can flex their muscles because they saw, uh, I I believe, I stand to be corrected, but I believe uh, the social conservative candidates got about 15% of the vote uh, in that leadership race. Uh, Brad Trost finished 4th. Um, Trose said afterwards, you know that uh, if um, Mr. Shear is smart, he will uh, listen to us. So this is going to be a tough one for Shear because I think he's a smart enough and a savvy enough politician that he knows that these social issues um, breaking out of his caucus and so on is going to set the uh, the brand back and make it more difficult for him to gain momentum going towards 2019. But, you know, the problem for him is that he, I think, philosophically agrees with uh,
1: uh, the the likes of Brad Trost. But but we heard that about Harper, too, didn't we? Tim, back when he was, even in his minority government days, uh, you know, the talk about hidden agenda and he's going to bring back the debate on civil marriage and abortion, etc. There was some talk even about capital punishment. Now, in his time, there were even a couple of uh, private member's bills from some of his backbenchers uh, that didn't get too far, but he never endorsed them. He basically told these guys, look, we're not going there. Uh, does Shear have the, the chops to be able to stand up to, to Trost and others and simply say, look it, thanks a lot but you know what, you've got because you, you, Harper seemed to take the idea, look at you guys on the the, the extreme right, you're going to support me anyway, you may not like me, you may not like the agenda, but you're going to support me anyway, because the only other alternative is, is highly uh, uh, unpalatable for them, does Shear take that same tack?
0: I think he does, and you're right, the the attitude was you, you've got no other home uh, you may not like the way that you know, speaking of Harper, you may not like the way that I'm I'm keeping this suppressed, but you're not going to go anywhere else. The Reform
1: you're, Party's you're gonna, not coming back.
0: No, um, but uh, we're going to find out whether Shear's got the uh, the chops to do that. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to have to watch how it, it plays out. I'll be honest with you. I don't know, but I I I do caution people about underestimating uh, Andrew Shear. He may he may. <laughs> have this kind of boyish look and this kind of impish grin and so on. But I think he is tough enough that if need be, uh, he will bring down the hammer in that caucus and, and and, uh, make sure that um, the, the SOCONs don't start to try to hijack part of the, uh, the agenda going forward. Because as I say, I think he's a savvy enough politician to know, you know, that this, this train left the station many, many years ago. And, um, this is not going to win the conservatives any vote. It'll galvanize a base in pockets. But, you know, this is a, a party that somehow has to make inroads in uh, urban areas and cities. And uh, you're not going to be making inroads in the big metropolitan areas in this country by uh, threatening to reopen the same sex marriage or the abortion debates. And uh, Andrew sheer knows that. And I think most of the caucus knows that. So uh, he's going to have to be tough. Uh, but I, I, I suspect he'll be able to keep them at bay. Uh, but. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, so we'll have to watch
1: that. It's a great piece. uh, Check it out online at the Toronto Star website today from uh, Tim Harper. Tim, thanks as always. Great having you on the show again. Great talking to you again, Bill. Thanks for calling. Take care. Tim Harper, of course, freelance writer and editor, and you can check out his piece in the Toronto Star.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.